I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Last week we looked at the account of Saul's conversion in the first 19 verses of this chapter. And as we noted then, Saul asked the two most important questions anyone can ask the Lord. Who are you and what do you want me to do? And the answers to those questions transformed his life. But this morning I want to remind you that those questions are not just reserved for the time of our conversion. We should always be asking, who are you, Lord, as we're coming to know him more and more. And we should always be asking, what do you want me to do, as he lays out each step of his direction for our lives. And that will become clear this morning as we look at Saul's early ministry in verses 19 to 31. I've entitled this section, A Basket Case. And I think you'll understand why as we go through it, because as Saul tried to find his niche in ministry, and as he learned some important lessons from the Lord, he was a basket case both literally and figuratively. These verses describe about the first 10 years of Saul's ministry, and most of that detail is given to us in two cities, the city of Damascus and the city of Jerusalem. We read about what he did in Damascus in verses 19 to 25, and we read about what he did in Jerusalem in verses 26 to 31. And we'll find that as Paul is trying to find his place in ministry, the pattern is the same in both of these cities. We'll find that first there's identification, then proclamation, then confrontation, and then evacuation. First of all, we'll see him in Damascus in verses 19 to 25, and the first thing we see there is identification, and that's at the end of verse 19. It says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Now there are several features about Saul's conversion that are unique to him, the light that came out of heaven, seeing Jesus, the temporary loss of his sight, but there are other things that were universal. There are some things that happen to Saul that are always associated with a person who is truly converted to faith in Christ. One is submission to the will of God. After asking, Lord, who are you? His next question was, Lord, what do you want me to do? And at the moment of conversion, Saul stopped giving orders and he started taking them. He stopped going his own direction and he started going God's direction. He stopped doing his own will and he surrendered himself to the will of God. A second characteristic is communion with the Lord. When Ananias came to Saul, we're told in verse 11 that he found him praying. Charles Spurgeon said this about prayer, it is the autograph of the Holy Spirit upon the renewed heart. And this same Saul would later write in Galatians 4, 6, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. At the moment of salvation, we begin a new relationship with God as Father, and the Spirit within us causes us to cry out in prayer like a little child to its daddy. Abba, Father. And then there's a third characteristic, and that's the one we read here in verse 19, and that's identification with God's people. Saul came to Damascus to eliminate the disciples of the Lord. Instead, he identifies with them. And one of the sure marks of a transformed life is the desire to be with fellow Christians. 
John said in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. One of the ways that I know I have changed kingdoms is because I now love the people I used to hate. And there's no clearer example of that than the case of Saul. I mean, these people's names were written on a crumpled up hit list in the pocket of his robe as he sat around the table and now fellowshiped with them. These people who were once his enemies are now his brothers and sisters in Christ. And the first thing he does in Damascus is identification with the people of God. Second thing that happens is proclamation in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now the custom in the synagogue was that if you were an educated Jewish man, you could open the Scriptures, read from them, and comment on them. Jesus did that many times. And Saul takes advantage of the fact here that he was a student of the great rabbi Gamaliel, and he preaches in the synagogues. And what's the essence of his message? Well, his message is... Jesus, that He is the Son of God. This is the only time in the book of Acts that title is given, the Son of God. Although Paul uses it at least 15 times in his New Testament letters. And I think oftentimes when we hear the phrase, Son of God, we often think that that somehow means that He's a little less than God. That He's not quite God. He's just the Son of God. But in Jesus' day, to be called the son of something meant you were totally identified with that person or that thing. Its identity was your identity. When Jesus called himself the son of God and when Saul called him the son of God, it was a clear claim to deity. Everyone in that day understood it. When Jesus referred to God as my father in John chapter 5, here's the reaction that he got in verse 18. It says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. You see, in the language of that day, those things were synonymous. To call yourself the Son of God was to claim equality with God. In Matthew 26, the high priest asked Jesus if he was the Christ the Son of God. And when Jesus said that He was, the high priest tore His robe and said, that's blasphemy. Why? Because to say, I am the Son of God, is synonymous with saying, I am God. And here we find Saul, three days earlier, saying Jesus was a deceiver, now saying Jesus is God. And what was the reaction to his message? Verse 21. And all those hearing Him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not He who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called upon this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Everyone who heard Saul preach was amazed. Why? Because of the contrast between what he had been doing and what he was doing. They were saying, Is this the same guy? The chief persecutor of Jesus has now become the chief preacher of Jesus. The one who came here to disband the disciples of the Lord has now joined the disciples of the Lord. And so everyone who saw 
Saul and heard him preach was amazed by the radical change in his life. But you know, for Saul, that was a normal expectation. Years later, he would write these words, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, when did Saul go into the synagogues and begin proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, look back at verse 20. It says, immediately. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. Because there's no better time to tell others about Jesus than right after you've been converted. Because then you still have the connections to all your unbelieving friends. You still understand what an unbeliever thinks like. And they still remember what you used to be like. And so they ought to be amazed by the change in your life. And it's also another one of those characteristics of genuine faith. Because genuine faith causes a person to proclaim Jesus. Saul would later write in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Every true believer proclaims Jesus. Now it's true that young Christians shouldn't be put into positions of authority in the church, according to 1 Timothy 3.6. But you don't need a position of authority to serve the Lord. Saul had only known the Lord three days when he was preaching in the synagogues. Which brings us to the third point, and that is confrontation in verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 begins, But Saul kept increasing in strength. Now, why was Saul increasing in strength? Well, I think we can point to two things. Number one was his willingness to serve. Verse 20 says he was proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues immediately after he was saved. And verse 22 says he kept increasing in strength. I think there's a correlation between the two. You see, Saul wasn't sitting still. He was active in serving the Lord. And as he served, he continued to increase in strength. God gave him more strength as he used the strength he had. You want to get more spiritual strength? then begin to serve other people. And as we begin to serve, we increase in strength. And so the first thing is his willingness to serve, but I think there's a second thing we can point to, and that is his willingness to spend time alone with God. Now Paul tells us something in Galatians chapter 1 that Luke doesn't record here. And I want to read, you, read it to you. It begins in verse 15. He says, When God was pleased to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. Saul left Damascus for a period of time and went into the Arabian desert, perhaps as long as three years. What was he doing there? Well, he doesn't tell us specifically, but I think he implies it for us in Galatians chapter 1. Because there he says, I didn't consult with flesh and blood. Instead, I went into Arabia. Why? To consult with 
the Lord. You see, Saul went into the Arabian desert for about three years because he needed to sort out all the things that he had learned and all the things he needed to unlearn in the past. God had called him to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus, and the training he got under Gamaliel was not enough. He had to have some training at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And that's why we read statements like this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. When did he receive it from the Lord? Out in Arabia. You see, out in Arabia, Saul got his D.D. degree, Doctor of the Desert. And I think it's possible that he went to Arabia and actually went from there down to Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia, which would be a fitting place for him to learn these things, because there he would go to the place where Moses received the law, which he had stood on in the past, and now in that same setting he would receive the new covenant from the Lord Jesus. And there in that setting he would, he would begin to understand the old in the light of the new. Now, Luke doesn't tell us about this adventure into Arabia, but I think it fits best at the beginning of verse 22 because it ties in with Saul's increase in spiritual strength and it also helps us to understand the end of verse 22 where it goes on to say, and he was confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. In verse 20, he was proclaiming. Now in verse 22... He's proving. How is that? He's taking the Old Testament Scriptures and He's showing from those Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And then verse 23 goes on to say, And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with Him. When the truth has made a radical transformation in the life of an individual, there are only two responses. One response is to admit that that is the power of God at work and so imply that that same power needs to change my life. The other response is to get rid of the evidence. And that's what happened in the case of the enemies of Saul. They saw his changed life. They say, we've got to get rid of him. Which brings us to the fourth point here, and that is the evacuation in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 says, But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Their plan was to kill Saul. Their strategy was to catch him when he came out of the city. And so Saul is here discovering for the first time what it's like to be the hunted rather than the hunter. He's learning what it's like to be the persecuted rather than the persecutor. And this is the beginning of the things Jesus said in verse 16, He must suffer for my name's sake. And then verse 25 says, But His disciples took Him by night and led Him down through an opening in the wall, lowering Him in a basket. Now God could have delivered Saul by some miracle. He could have snatched him away like He did Philip in Acts chapter 8, but He didn't do that. It says here the disciples put Him in a basket. And in the dark of night, they lowered him down through an opening in the wall. How humiliating that must have been for Saul. He was led into Damascus as a blind man. He was smuggled out of Damascus like a common criminal. 
He came with an entourage, with letters to the synagogues, as an emissary of the high priest. He left in a basket. And he goes from there to Jerusalem, where we see his ministry in verses 26 to 31. Now Luke doesn't say anything here about how Saul was feeling or what he was thinking as he approached the city of Jerusalem, but I have to think that he was feeling a lot of pressure. Because he had left Jerusalem three years earlier as the big man on campus in Judaism. Now he's coming back as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he knows he's going to see all his old colleagues, all his old Pharisee buddies, his old teacher. And yet here we find the same pattern we saw in Damascus. Number one, identification, verses 26 and 27. Notice verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. This is a strange situation for Saul. He has left Judaism. He's become a Christian, but neither group is accepting him. And that phrase in verse 26, he was trying, literally means he kept trying. He kept trying to get into their fellowship and they wouldn't accept him. Why not? Well, it tells us. It says they were afraid of him. They thought that this was some kind of plot to infiltrate their group. They thought he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so they were afraid of him. It also gives us a second reason at the end of verse 26. It says they were not believing that he was a disciple. They were just reluctant to embrace him until they really saw it with their own eyes. And so they said, we don't believe. The church today is is that way oftentimes as well. I read recently in a magazine article that Alice Cooper got saved. Uh, if, If you're saying, oh yeah, Alice Cooper, she's one of my favorites, then you're giving yourself away. Uh, Alice Cooper is a man. He's a rock star who became popular in the early 70s. He was, I guess, the original shock rock act. He he got on stage with with makeup and live snakes, and he would simulate his own decapitation, and he sang songs about rebellion and immorality and excess. I I, I read that he's now involved in a Bible church in Phoenix, Arizona, that he sings in the choir and he helps out in the nursery. Can you imagine as a new person <laughs> bringing your baby to the nursery and Alice Cooper is the volunteer worker there. But you know, the surprising aspect of that story is not the fact that the former man of darkness is now a believer. The surprising aspect of that story is that in the letters to the editor in the following months, the consensus from most Christians was about the same. They said, I don't believe it's real. I give him about a year and he'll be back in the world. Why is it that we believe more in the power of man's sin than we do in the power of God's grace? You know, if you're a Christian here this morning, you should... Never be surprised by the grace of God. But the early church was. And so they held Saul at arm's length. 
but not all of them. Verse 27 goes on to say, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Aren't you thankful for people like Ananias and Barnabas who will welcome people into the family of God with simple friendship? It says here that Barnabas saw Saul's predicament and he laid hold of him and he brought him to the apostles and he said to them, he's seen the Lord and the Lord has talked to him and he has spoken out boldly in the name of Christ in Damascus. Barnabas bridges the gap between Saul and the Jerusalem believers. Why? Well, the short answer is love. As Saul would later write in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. And that was certainly true of Barnabas. Barnabas' given name was Joseph, according to Acts 4.36, but the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And here again, he's living up to his name. First thing Saul does in Jerusalem is identification with the people of God. Second thing is proclamation, verse 28. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Just as he did at Damascus, Paul speaks out boldly in the name of the Lord. But the interesting thing I want you to note here is that Saul didn't begin proclaiming Christ until he established fellowship with the church there. Fellowship is the foundation of our witness. Because I am not an island. I am an extension of the body of Christ. Verse 28 says He was with them speaking out boldly. You see, He didn't speak out boldly until He established that foundation with the people of God. And of course, the flip side of that is that fellowship is not an end in itself. Some Christians get together for fellowship and you never hear from them again. That's not the point of fellowship. Fellowship should be a jumping off point. Fellowship should be a launching pad to send me out into the world as a witness. Then the third thing that happens here is confrontation, verse 29. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. It didn't take long for Saul to zero in on the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. This was the group he had been associated with before when he was in Jerusalem. This was the group along with Saul who had stoned Stephen to death. And so Saul who watched the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death is now picking up the mantle of Stephen and carrying on his ministry. And he's getting the same reaction Stephen did. It said they were attempting to put him to death. In fact, it didn't take long for Saul to wear out his welcome in Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 18, he tells us he was only there for 15 days. Which brings us to the fourth thing that happened, and that is the evacuation in verses 30 and 31. Verse 30 says, But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Saul's getting familiar with this. He's escaping again. This time the disciples take him to Caesarea about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. 
on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They put him in a boat and they send him 360 miles north to Cilicia. This was Saul's hometown, Tarsus. Now what's interesting here is that this time the disciples don't just get him out of the city, they get him out of the country. And we're not going to hear from Saul for several more years. In fact, we're not going to hear from him again until Acts chapter 11 when Barnabas goes and finds him and brings him back into the picture again. But you know what's interesting to me is verse 31. It says, So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. That's almost comical. They got rid of Saul, and it says, So, they enjoyed peace. He had been the chief persecutor of the church. Then he became the chief target of the persecution. They finally got him out of the way and things settled down. Now, notice some of the things we're told about the church here. Number one, it was unified. Verse 31 says, The church singular in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. The Jewish believers in Judea and Galilee and the Samaritan believers were all in harmony. They were united. Secondly, it tells us they were at peace. Thirdly, it tells us they were being built up, edified. Fourthly, it tells us that they were balanced. They were going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And I love those two expressions. Fear and comfort, we tend to think those are opposites. But we experience those at the same time. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then the final thing it tells us in verse 31 about the church is that it was growing. It says it continued to increase. Now, what do we learn from this passage? Well, let me suggest to you this morning that there's one overriding message here. And that is that God's ways are not our ways. God does not do things the way we would do things. And let me give you several examples of that. Number one, God chose Saul. We wouldn't have. We would have executed Saul. We, like the church at Jerusalem, wouldn't even have associated with him. But God chose him. Why? Because of grace. In verse 15 of this chapter, we're told that God chose Saul before there was anything worthy about Saul. Which only serves to underline the character of salvation. It's not earned. It's not a matter of God choosing the most lovable. It defies logic because it's all grace. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, Saul calls himself the chief of sinners. In 1 Timothy 1.16, he says that God saved him as an example of His great mercy and patience. Oftentimes when I'm talking to somebody about their relationship with God, they'll say something like, I'm not really a bad person. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. Killing is at the top of our list of bad things to do. 
In fact, our culture considers murder the worst thing you can do. That's evident by the fact that it gets the greatest punishment. But with that in mind, isn't it surprising that arguably the three most significant men in Scripture other than Jesus were guilty of murder? Moses killed an Egyptian. David killed Uriah. And and Paul killed a number of Christians. You know, if you steal money, it can be paid back. If you get in a fight with somebody and break their arm, it will heal. But murder is permanent. It's something you have to live with every day. It can't be undone. But you know what? It can be forgiven. And that's what we see God doing as He chooses Saul. God's ways are not our ways. Let me give you a second example of that. God didn't choose to use Saul's natural strengths. We would have thought if God was going to choose Saul, surely He would use him by becoming an apostle to reach the children of Israel. I mean, he had the background. He spoke Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. He had the training. He was educated under the finest teacher of that day in Israel. He had the ability. He was unbeatable in debate. He had the passion. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 3, he says that he would willingly be separated from Christ if it could mean the salvation of the people of Israel. He was beyond question the most qualified. And I think that Saul thought that that was going to be his niche in ministry. Surely God would use him to reach Israel because after all, who could do the job better? But in his first two attempts at ministry in Damascus and Jerusalem, God was clearly teaching him otherwise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says there, if I have anything to boast about, it's my weakness. And then he tells us why in the next chapter. He says, because when I am weak, then I am strong. And you know what incident he points to at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as the greatest illustration of his weakness? He describes it as the time he was lowered in the basket through the opening in the wall of Damascus. In that moment of humiliation, he had just tried his first attempt at ministry, he had to go out of the city in a basket. In that moment of humiliation, he's telling us, God was trying to teach me a lesson. And that lesson was that God didn't need my strength. God wanted to work through my weakness. Now Saul didn't learn that lesson right away because he goes on to Jerusalem and he goes in and he begins to argue with the Jewish people in Jerusalem. But there's another incident that happened in Jerusalem when Saul was there that we don't read about in Acts chapter 9. We read about it in Acts chapter 22, and I want you to look over there because I want you to see this. Acts chapter 22 and verse 17, he's describing the same event that happened in Acts chapter 9, and he says in verse 17, and it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. God confronts 
Saul in the temple, and he says, leave, you don't belong here. Verse 19, And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in thee. And when the blood of thy witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. What's Saul saying? God, I've got the perfect testimony to reach the Jews. I was a Christian killer. I'm the most qualified guy you've got. When they hear me preach, they can't help but believe. And God's response is in verse 21. And He said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Go. I don't need your strengths. I want to work through your weaknesses. And until you understand that, I'm sending you home. You see, God didn't choose to use Saul's natural strengths to reach the people of Israel. Instead, He sent him to the Gentiles where he would have to depend upon God's strength. God's ways are not our ways. Let me give you one more quick example. God is never in a hurry. We're always in a hurry. God is never in a hurry because He's building for eternity. Saul spent three years out in the desert. He spent several years in and around Tarsus before we ever hear from him again. And I'm sure there were times when Saul was probably saying to God, let's get on with it. But God is never in a hurry. Moses was ready to be the leader of Israel when he was 40 years old. God wasn't ready to use him until he was 80 years old because he had a lot more to learn about humility. And Saul had to learn those things as well. God's ways are not our ways. He chooses people we wouldn't choose. He doesn't use our natural strengths. And to show us that, sometimes he has to make us a basket case. And he's never in a hurry. If he's telling you to wait today, then get out your notepad because he's got some more lessons for you to learn. We're going to close in prayer, but before we do, I'm going to ask Graham if he would come up. And uh, at the close of the service, I'm going to ask you to come up and encourage him today on his baptism. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that shows us the attempts of Saul at early ministry. And Father, we thank You for the lessons that we find there. We're amazed that You would take this man who was killing Your people and make him Your own and much more make him Your apostle to serve You. Father, we're amazed that You didn't choose to use all the natural strengths He had to, to reach the people of Israel. Instead, You took Him to the Gentiles because Your power works best through our weakness. And Father, we thank You that we see also how patient You are that our timing has to line up with Your timing. And Father, as we view these things in His life, we pray that we might apply them to our own as we seek to serve You today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.